Welcome to the first of what I'm sure is going to be many episodes where we talk about The Simpsons. Like most American millennials, The Simpsons was a staple of my childhood. Afternoon reruns were something I consumed on a daily basis for years. As such, I've internalized a great deal of the show's humor and perspective. I have almost certainly been shaped by The Simpsons in ways that I can't fully quantify, which is a bit frightening when I think about it too long. And if Real Deep Dive is a compilation of the various media interests of myself and my guest, there's been a big Simpson-shaped hole until now, so we're going to start filling it. My name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. Alright, joining me on this one is uh, my brother Sylvan. Hello, and speaking of being unhealthily shaped by the Simpsons, I'm a vegetarian. Thank you, Lisa. And then we have Rachel, who didn't grow up with the Simpsons. Yeah, I mean, I did watch the Simpsons, but when it comes to, like, an animated TV show that shaped a great deal of my humor, before we watched the Simpsons, I was watching Spongebob. Yeah, you're also a big Kim Possible person. Oh, yeah, it's like... How do we set it for on, on other episodes? Like, we're, I'm younger than Ryan. We're close in part in age, but we did not watch the same cartoons growing up. Yeah, you called Sylvan and I Simpsons experts, which I'm a bit reluctant to take because it's such a cultural institution that has shaped so many millions upon millions of people that it was inevitable for me to meet people who like The Simpsons more than I'm capable of liking anything. Plus, we kind of peter out after season 10. We're a bit snobby. Yes, we're those types of Simpsons fans. Yeah, but I never, see also Weezer, Star Wars, Metallica. <laughs> yeah, but I never watched The Simpsons as much as I do now since living with you guys. Like, I did watch it when I was a kid. My mom would be like, oh, we have to watch the Treehouse of Horror episodes. But other than that, it was only an occasional thing. Yeah, for us, it's perpetual background radiation. Yeah, it's a go-to comfort thing when I'm stressed out or sick, I'll throw on The Simpsons. But um, I was just thinking of the fact that, like, when we were kids, it was actually kind of rare that we were allowed to watch The Simpsons. And we used to sit down as a family and do it. But uh, I remember a lot of kids in my class weren't allowed to watch it. Yeah, it was considered naughty for a while, which feels awfully quaint considering the things that have come in its wake. I know, right? South Park, Family Guy, my God. President. Anyways. <laughs> also, like people like Ted Cruz like The Simpsons, which I, uh, it hurts to think about. I mean, people are capable of enjoying things without at all understanding them, it seems. You know, like Ted Cruz with most of his interests. But, uh, no, people uh, people uh, who like Rick and Morty. <laughs> as much as I'd love to dunk on Ted Cruz for 40 uninterrupted minutes, The Simpsons is funny. Anyway. Yeah, like The Twilight Zone, my plan is to divide the episodes up based on the writer, which each program centering on three key episodes scripted by them. Conan O'Brien usually isn't cited as the greatest Simpsons writer. That distinction usually goes to John Schwartzwell who wrote 59 episodes. Uh, O'Brien is usually not also credited as the most influential Simpsons writer, that usually goes to either Schwartzwelder or George Meyer, who's credited with 12 episodes, but has a rewriting or consult credit on over 200 others. That's a lot of episodes. Most shows do not have 200 episodes. Uh, O'Brien is, however, easily the most famous Simpsons writer, largely because of his decades as a talk show host. He's also pretty much the only Simpsons writer who is a legit celebrity outside of nerd culture. He was present during the period where the program transformed into what people generally uh, love it for, and one of his episodes is routinely argued as the best one in the program's history. Is he also, like, the only um, Simpsons writer who's then come back and been a guest in the show? Yes, we'll get to that. 
Plus, he only has three episodes that he's the credited writer on, plus a contribution to Treehouse of Horror, so I didn't have to worry about paring down a massive body of work to a small yet representational sampler. Did he have writer consult credits on any other episodes? A couple, and he has a couple of producing credits. It's hard to parse who did what. Like most shows, the credited writer is not the only person who worked on it. The Simpsons has a writer's room, everyone's throwing around ideas. The show gets bandied about for weeks before they settle on a final script. To illustrate this, Fort Wilder is often considered the most consistent Simpsons writer because at least half of his final script is actually used in the episode. All right, that makes sense. Uh, before we go into the episodes, I'll give a brief rundown of Conan O'Brien's background. He was born in Brookline, Massachusetts, and was an intern for Congressman Robert Drynan, and he graduated his high school as class valedictorian. He attended Harvard and began writing for the Harvard Lampoon, and served as the magazine's president for his sophomore and junior years. At this point, he dedicated himself to becoming a comedy writer. After he graduated, O'Brien began writing for various sketch comedy and variety shows and joined the improv group The Groundlings, which is generally seen as a farm team for Saturday Night Live. So, he was hired by Lorne Michaels as a writer on Saturday Night Live in 1988. He won an Emmy for writing the show in 89. However, after an engagement fell apart, O'Brien quit the show with no fallback plan. Fortunately for him, Simpsons showrunners Mike Race and Al Jean offered him a staff job. Conan O'Brien was the first writer hired for The Simpsons after the original crew was put together for the very first season. Since he was the new guy, O'Brien got Jeff Martin's old office, which was one floor down from the proper writer's room and was frequently attacked by outdoor pigeons. <laughs> They started him out on basic rewrites, just like punching up crappy dialogue, giving things another pass. He started going a little stir-crazy. People noticed funny noises coming out of his office. Uh, this that were not pigeon-related? That were not pigeon-related. Apparently, uh, even today, O'Brien likes to act out bits while he's working on them, so that's what those were, but they didn't know that. Oh my, God, my mom was like, when I was sitting in writing on my laptop, like hanging out with my family while we're like watching football or something, my mom's like, Rachel, where are you? frowning. I'm like, oh, sorry, I'm writing something dramatic. She's like, well, you're frowning a lot, right? I'm like, well, I guess. <laughs> Eventually, Schwartzwelder convinced the uh, producers to let Conan O'Brien into the writing room. Kept saying, come on, he looks like a sad little puppy. Let him in. <laughs> something along the lines. <laughs> Conan O'Brien gelled with the writing team straight away, despite the fact that he was a few years younger and he found his co-workers intimidating. The Simpsons was considered the best comedy writing team in America at the time, and it was considered a big deal that they hired a new person, and that was him. He frequently pitched gags with character voices until Reese told him that nobody else did this. Hey, let him be creative. I think that's a good idea. Still, O'Brien often commanded the writer's room when he finally got in there. He was constantly doing bits and acting out character beats and cracking everyone up with various inside jokes. Gene remarked that O'Brien's energy both galvanized and confused the writers and producers. <laughs> he was always on, even for 10 to 12 hour shifts. They were wondering where he got this from. Jesus. He would try out joke ideas on the janitorial staff, and people would notice O'Brien practicing bits while he was alone in his crappy office, as I already pointed <laughs> out. Uh, Hanging out with the pigeons? Yeah, O'Brien would often use props, including a Rocky Balboa doll. 
early Simpsons episodes were a bit more grounded than what the show would grow into. If you revisit the first three seasons, there were a lot of things that are weird about them, but another thing is that they're just not that crazy. Yeah, I remember, I think the earliest episode that I've watched is Bart Gets an F, and that was a very, like, ordinary episode with the ordinary problem. Yeah, that it was a good sh- episode. That could show up on, like, the Facts of Life or Full House or something else without <laughs> R.I.P. Bob Saget. <laughs> You know, O'Brien wasn't solely responsible for amping up the surreal absurdity and satirical elements that the program would be celebrated for later, but his episodes are signposts in that creative direction, particularly one of them. But before we do that, we're going to start with New Kid on the Block, which kind of isn't an O'Brien episode. James L. Brooks put together the basic plot beats, and in order to try out O'Brien, there's like, hey, punch this up. This, these are the things that need to happen, and then fill in the in-between bits with jokes. Oh, yeah, basic plot of the episode is that the Simpsons' elderly neighbors, the Winfields, finally relocate because of Homer's antics. The new neighbors are Ruth Powers, who is divorced, and this is a much bigger deal in the early 90s than it is now, and her young daughter, Laura, whom Bart falls in love with more or less at first sight. She's cool. I mean, she's got, like, an army jacket. She knows lots of jokes. Definitely cool by 10-year-old standards. Uh, this is how I learned about wet willies. <laughs> After seeing a television advertisement about an all-you-can-eat seafood restaurant called the Frying Dutchman. I Rachel love, loves that name. Yeah, I love the, the name is great, and also just the animated neon light is just a fisherman throwing fish into a chubby guy's mouth. <laughs> Homer forces Marge to come with him, even though she's allergic to seafood, leaving Laura to babysit Bart and Lisa. Homer quickly enrages the sea captain, making his first appearance. Oh, really? That's his first appearance? Yeah. Aww. Devouring nearly all the food in the buffet, and is eventually hauled out before he has finished. Much to Marge's embarrassment, Homer sues the restaurant for false advertising. Lionel Hutz is employed to represent him in court, and the case is successful after Hutz convinces the overweight jurors that a similar buffet fate could befall them. Yeah, I mean, honestly, as someone who's worked in a, a cafe and a restaurant, you really hate the people who just won't go when it's closing time. You're gritting your teeth, like, just get out of here so I can take out the trash. To avoid further legal trouble, the sea captain and Homer eventually agree that Homer shall be displayed in the restaurant (laughs) as bottomless Pete, nature's cruelest mistake, to draw in more customers and offset the cost of his eating. Marge has a rough go in this episode. Yeah, and I got to see a meme in the wild, the one where Marge is, like, hiding her face, like, God, I hope people don't realize this is me. Yeah, Rachel saw the memes before she saw yeah. the context. This is her relationships at The Simpsons, if we're going to spell that out. I think that illuminates it perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Marge's role in this episode makes me think of the gag in the, part, the Cartridge Family episode, where... Marge is like, I think I have put up with a lot in this marriage. And Homer starts to argue and Bart and Lisa just start shaking their heads. Oh my god, yes, I remember that. That's a good scene. Uh, Bart is delighted to have Laura babysitting him and attempts to impress her by putting on a smoking jacket and using a bubble pipe like a Stu <laughs> Hefner. But later, to Bart's dismay, Laura informs him that she is dating Jimbo Jones, one of the bullies from his school. When Laura, babysitting again, invites Jimbo over to the Simpson household, Bart, in an attempt to break them up, prank calls Moe's tavern, giving his name as Jimbo Jones and then giving Moe the Simpsons address. Which Moe doesn't recognize in this episode for reasons. Yeah, apparently. What did he say? It's like, I need a man to hug and kiss. 
Yes. Their Amanda hug and kiss. Yes, we'll be getting to the crank calls in a bit. <laughs> Believing that Jimbo is the one who's been pranking him all this time through the running gag, Mo rushes to the Simpsons house, brandishing a large, rusty, and dull kitchen knife. He finds Jimbo, who bursts into tears and begs for his life upon being threatened. I mean, I'd pee my pants if Mo started doing that to me. <laughs> yeah, Mo spares him, but Laura instantly breaks up with him for not being the tough outlaw she thought he was, which seems harsh. Like, even on the episode commentary, Conan O'Brien is like, that's a bit much. He cried because the knife-wielding maniac threatened to split him open. What else did he have going for him besides his pseudo-tough guy image, though? I mean, Laura's supposed to be a young teenager, and Jimbo's in the same roughly age group as Bart, education-wise. Yes, he's still in the fifth grade, I want to say. Probably got held back a few years. I mean, there is a running gag about one of the other bullies, essentially being, yeah, being 35, but we haven't gotten to that yet. Uh, she tells Bart that she would certainly date him if you were older, enough to grow a trashy mustache. And the episode ends with the pair laughing after prank calling Mo once again. I wish he appeared in more episodes. Well, the mom is in a few, and yeah, you've seen one I've of seen, them. I've seen that one. That's the one where she breaks the law and brings and Marge Sarah Gilbert her. could come back and voice her if she wanted. Her voice sounds roughly the same. Yeah, I know. Well, anyways, behind-the-scenes stuff. As I said, Brooks came up with the basic plot for New Kid. The B-plot was supposed to be completely different. It was intended to feature Don Rickles. Uh, the premise was that Rickles would be doing his insult comedy routine with Homer in the audience. Isn't it Don Rickles the voice of Mr. Potato Head? Yes, he is. Okay, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> like the bit in the first Toy Story where Mr. Potato Head goes, what are you looking at, you hockey puck? And then the hockey puck is confused. He's like, like Yeah, that's a reference to a Don Rickles catchphrase. <laughs> anyway, Homer would be laughing throughout, but would get offended and punch Rickles in the face when the comedian began dunking on him, and then Rickles would take Homer to court for assault. Yeah, sometime later, Matt Groening would be introduced to Rickles personally, and he was shocked when Rickles furiously accused Groening of spying on his Las Vegas act and stealing his jokes for the episode. So they say that's the reason why Rickles turned down the appearance. Although, in general, Simpsons writers say that, well, we've had a lot of celebrities on the show, and people assume that everyone we ask says yes. We do have a hard time with older showbiz lifers who were famous decades before The Simpsons became a thing. And, yeah, Rickles is one of the many people that they turn down. They're always very pleasantly surprised when they ask an older person and they say yes. It's like, yeah, we got Rodney Dangerfield, we got Johnny Cash... Fingers. Oh, Johnny Cash's episode is one of my favorites. I'm surprised. I mean, Don Rickles was Mr. Potato Head. Now, uh, the writers vehemently deny that they listened in on Rickles' uh, Las Vegas bits. They said that they listened to a couple of his 1950s albums and then wrote jokes that they felt were in the same idiom. Reese and Gene theorized that Rickles was also sensitive about being perceived as a jerk for his insult comedy. Uh, in most public appearances, Rickles tried very hard to come off as a nice guy and that the stage act was just an act. Yeah, I mean, I've watched some of like his, when he's a really old man sitting on stage and he seems like, you know, know, a jovial elder statesman more than, like, an insult comic. And, uh, where does his Tales from the Crypt appearance fit in there? <laughs> So anyways, after that plot uh, was torpedoed, O'Brien wrote another B-plot centering on Homer becoming a very talented hairdresser. He just happens to have a natural knack for it. Sam Simon, who was still involved in The Simpsons at this point, I, I guess we'll get into Sam Simon drama in a different episode, he rejected this one outright. And then O'Brien had to write the all-you-can-eat one, his third crack at the B-plot. And apparently this is the only time in Simpsons history where they had to scrap two B-plots. 
This episode marks the first appearance of both Ruth Powers and the Sea Captain. Hank Azaria based the Sea Captain on Robert Newton, who played Long John Silver in the 1950 Disney version of Treasure Island. I've seen that when I was a child. As we mentioned before, Ruth Powers shows up a couple more times, although she never becomes a regular. She's in the Thelma and Louise parody, and uh, a much later episode where Marge becomes a professional bodybuilder. Oh, that episode's terrible. She's also in a lot of crowd scenes. She does show up in a lot of crowd scenes. New Kid on the Block is probably the apex of the Bart's prank call to Mo running gags. These were based on a series of recordings made by John Elmo and Jim Davidson. They would call a New Jersey bar owned by a retired boxer named Louis Red Deutsch and ask to speak with various fake joke names. Deutsch would fall for this every single time. <laughs> blow his stack and go into threatening rants and these tapes started circulating amongst like comedy nerd people and became sort of like a predecessor to like the jerky boys or crank yankers and stuff like that and i remember watching crank yankers as a kid yeah graining thought that the tapes were funny and the concept was lifted for the simpsons the writers hated these bits. They hated coming up with crank call bits. They hated coming up with the names. It always took forever. It would never get a laugh at the table reads. And the jokes were always greeted with stone silence whenever they did promotional screenings at fan conventions and the like. Really? I mean, maybe they just needed to show them to more eight-year-olds because we thought they were pretty great. Yeah, we were in the Target demo for <laughs> Ivana Tinkle. <laughs> Not too long after this, the prank calls to Mo were essentially dropped from the show, and at least according to Gene and Reese, nobody in the Phantom complained when the bit was dropped. Another thing I think I should mention is Jimbo, because it's, I mean, it's not his first appearance, but I wanted to mention the character at least a little bit. At least the name of the character is based on something that um, Matt Groening gleaned off one of his colleagues, Gary Panter, who was a fellow underground cartoonist. His main character was named Jimbo, and he was a devilish little boy who had a spiky hairstyle. And he'd just go around causing havoc and blundering into mishaps. That sounds very familiar. All right, themes for this episode. First thing I wrote down was the childhood crush on the cool older girl. Getting back to The Simpsons not having its quite elastic reality yet. This is a pretty standard sitcom trope. It made me think of Dipper loving Wendy in Gravity Falls. Oh, definitely. But yeah, that's another thing that shows up on something like The Cosby Show or Full House. And I mean, it's relatable. Yeah, it is a basic relatable concept for The Simpsons' target demo. Because in the first couple of seasons, it's mostly about Bart. Mm-hmm. People associated with the show have various explanations for why the show gradually started turning into more of a Homer-centric thing. Uh, the first thing they did was, like, when we created the show, we were a lot younger, so we related more to Bard than to Homer. And then now that we're old men and older than Homer, Homer's our best conduit. Another thing they say is that there's just more storytelling possibilities with a grown-ass man who can drive to places. Yes, it's why Randy on South Park is featured more in modern episodes because the writer's like, yeah, we're in our 40s now. We relate to him more than the kids. Bar can get an F, but Homer can blow up the town. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing I wanted to mention was Marge's long-suffering relationship with Homer, which is just a core motif of the show in general, but is really illuminated in this one. It's just a, a series of Homer being oblivious to how much he's humiliating his wife. Yeah, I mean, at least in, like, these early episodes, I can understand why they're together, because... 
they do actually love each other, and they have a healthy sex life. Yeah, when um, Patton Oswalt was doing promotional interviews for the first season of MODOK, he kept bringing up The Simpsons when he was building a contrast between how the MODOK show handles uh, domestic relationships and most sitcoms do, because most sitcoms just reset to the default at the beginning, but since TV these days is a lot more serialized, you can explore a failing marriage. And he's like, yeah, as much as I love The Simpsons, if their reality was less elastic, Marge would have definitely divorced Homer by now. There's just no reasonable way to argue that she, she wouldn't. There's a shitty new Simpsons episode where they do separate and he dates Lena Dunham. <sighs> there are a couple of episodes where Homer and Marge separate and then come back together at the end. I'm not crazy about most of them, but I, I do have a soft spot for the one where he moves in with the two gay men. I've not seen that one. You have to show it to me sometime. Okay, next one. I, you said that you wanted to do Marge and the Monorail last. Yeah, because I figured that it was going to be the episode where it would have the most to say. Okay, we'll skip chronologically to Homer Goes to College. So this is probably the weakest of the three, but oh, still a sure. good episode. Yeah, it made me laugh. During an inspection of the Springfield Nuclear Power Plant by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Homer is placed in a test module van that simulates a power surge. <laughs> he has no idea what to do, so he pushes buttons at random and causes a nuclear meltdown, even though the van contains no nuclear material. It starts blowing and it sinks into the parking lot. Despite Mr. Burns' offer of a bribe, the NRC officials tell him that Homer's job requires college training in nuclear physics. After Homer is rejected by every school he applies to, Mr. Burns helps him enroll at Springfield University. Homer neglects his studies to the surprise of no one, instead living out his fantasies of college life, which are largely gleaned from adolescent movies and TV shows, you know, your Revenge of the Nerds, Animal House, stuff like that. Thinking college life is full of pranks, partying, and rigid deans, Homer insults Dean Peterson, thinking he is a crusty old administrator. He's actually like, he's hip. He's cool. He was the bass player for The Pretenders, which was still a hip popular group around roughly the time the show aired. <laughs> Homer is asked to demonstrate how a proton accelerator works and causes a nuclear meltdown in class. Dean Peterson recommends Homer receive tutoring, and when his tutors, three nerds named Benjamin, Doug, and Gary, try to help Homer understand physics, he refuses to cooperate. Instead, he and Bart convince them to pull a prank on rival college Springfield A&M by kidnapping the school's mascot, a pig named Sir Oinkselot. He's a very round pig in like a little cap and sweater. <laughs> when the pig falls ill after Homer feeds it malt liquor, the nerds are blamed for the incident and expelled. I was afraid that they were going to kill the pig. No, it doesn't get that dark. I mean, it's possible. We don't see the pig afterwards. <laughs> I do think the pig shows up in a few crowd shots. All right, few. Homer invites the nerds to move in with the Simpson family, and their presence quickly disrupts the normal routine. My favorite part of the episode is definitely Bart and Lisa trying to watch the Itchy and Scratchy episode where Scratchy gets itchy and the nerds <laughs> ruining it for them. And Scratchy's like, we're never going to show this again. And this and is... back in the 90s, that was a real possibility. Yeah, yeah this is decades before YouTube, kids. <laughs> Although the Simpsons were all stars at keeping their shit off YouTube even before Disney bought them, but uh, that's neither here nor there. When Marge orders Homer to evict the nerds, he tries to get them readmitted to college with an elaborate hoax. He will nearly run down Peterson with his car, but the nerds will push him from harm's way at the last moment. <laughs> 
Homer hopes that the Dean will be so grateful for the nerds for saving his life that he will readmit them. The plan, however, backfires because Homer's car actually hits the Dean, seriously injuring him, requiring a hip replacement. At the hospital, Homer admits that he's responsible for the pranks and begs the Dean to readmit Benjamin, Doug, and Gary. The Dean agrees, and they move back into their old dormitory room. Homer receives no consequences for running down the Dean. <laughs> Well, we can't have him go to jail. At the end of the semester, Homer is completely unprepared for his final exam. So the nerds help him cram for it. Despite their best efforts, Homer slacks off and gets an F anyways. Uh, the nerds then hack into the school's student records and change his grade to an A+. But Marge finds out and forces Homer to take the course again to set a good example for Bart and Lisa. <laughs> Once again, running down the dean is not brought up. Uh, during the end credits, Homer's return to college is full of cliches, a food fight, phone booth stuffing, ask your parents what a phone booth is, kid, and fraternity hazing. Homer flashes the audience during his graduation ceremony, which Rachel did not have to see because the Disney Plus thing zoomed out for that. Thank you, Disney Plus. <laughs> Okay, uh, O'Brien was doing the prep work for this episode when David Letterman left NBC for CBS. Uh, look up the Letterman-Leno drama if you're interested in, like, showbiz backstabbing. It's pretty fascinating in that context. Anyways, O'Brien was asked to audition to replace Letterman. Most of the episode commentary that I listened to focuses on O'Brien scrambling to finish Homer Goes to College while trying out for the late night gig and trying not to make the Simpsons producers furious with him for walking out on his contract less than a year after signing it. <laughs> For the most part, the people that he saw every day were very supportive. Even Schwartzwelder said that he would watch his show. And the writing room wrote O'Brien a guest role where he was a talk show host before he was even confirmed for uh, the slot. Oh, nice. I didn't know about that timing. Yeah, they mentioned, hey, what if you blew it? And then we had you come <laughs> in and do a voice for your talk show host. That would have been funny. <laughs> Supportive-ish. Yeah. The network did, however, require O'Brien to pay them, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars in severance. Homer Goes to College was one of O'Brien's preferred pitches. He loved the idea of Homer having to go back to school and assuming that it would be like Animal House or one of its numerous rip-offs. That's essentially what he built this thing around. The scene where Homer lights his diploma on fire while singing I Am So Smart, S-M-R-T, I mean S-M-A-R-T, was a flub. Dan Castaneda accidentally misspelled the word smart during the recording and producers insisted on keeping it in. I think it's a good touch. According to the writers, Castellaneta frequently makes little mistakes like that when he's in character and doing the Homer voice. Not Krusty, not Grandpa, not any of the other voices he does, just Homer. And apparently many of these errors make it into the final episodes. <laughs> O'Brien based the three nerds on his actual dorm mates from Harvard. These guys were glued to their computers and were big Python fanatics and could recite Holy Grail from beginning to end. One of their routines that didn't make it into this episode would involve dropping heavy books on the floor, which would spur the women on the floor below to come up and bang on the door to complain to them. You know, that was the only way they could talk to ladies, I guess. And the other writers were like, why didn't you write that in? O'Brien was like, well, it's creepy, isn't it? We're supposed to like the nerds, right? Are we? I don't know. I mean, the dorm that I lived in my freshman year of college, because my college was predominantly women, we had one floor of guys. They were on the bottom. So going up, you'd see all of, like, the nice little boys. Oh, hang on. Leap that out. College name redacted boys going up. <laughs> 
into my the Lima penthouse because I lived on the top floor. <laughs> yeah, so no, no book dropping there. Fox execs really liked this episode and they wanted it to be the season premiere, largely because of its Animal House connections. But the writers pushed for Homer's Barbershop Quartet because George Harrison did a guest voice for it. I do think that's the better episode. The animators were short on time, so the nerd Gary was an earlier existing caricature of director Rich Moore that was altered to make him black. If you watch the Monorail episode, you can see the caricature of that director. He is falling off the escalator. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> First theme I wanted to bring up for this one was Homer failing upwards and dancing between <laughs> the raindrops. Because he doesn't deserve anything that happens to him. Just like, oh no, I'm going to lose my job because I'm dangerously unqualified. And like, well, yes, he gets hired back. That's a reasonable reason to lose your job. Yeah, he puts a lot of people in peril in this episode, and it's delightful and funny, but would be horrifying in real life. And yeah, this just keeps getting expanded throughout the classic era of the show. I think Frank Grimes is generally considered the culmination of this sort of thing. And another thing I wanted to bring up was... I mean, this is going to come up eventually if we keep doing Simpsons episodes. The early 1990s perception of nuclear power, especially being as routinely dangerous as it is. Some people have claimed that one of the main reasons that we still rely so heavily on coal and natural gas, even in our year of the Lord 2022, is because programs like The Simpsons giving nuclear power a bad name. I am iffy about that. I do think that there are many elements of nuclear fission that are dangerous, particularly the storing and disposal of radioactive waste. Hey, timely topic. Isn't there a, a Massachusetts power plant that's trying to get permission to dump wastewater into the Cape Cod right now? Yes, there is. And... Yeah, it's easy to be cynical about this sort of thing. There are a lot of running gags of, like, Mr. Burns bribing nuclear officials or paying fines that aren't nearly as severe as what his profits off of environmental degradation were, therefore making the fines a pointless slap on the wrist that doesn't stop bad actors from doing bad things. All the things that are still relevant today, and just in coal plants instead of nuclear ones. And hey, no Three Mile Island, so there's that. Or Chernobyl. Yeah, also Chernobyl. Uh, yeah, I think Chernobyl has a, a bigger um, hold on why people are skeptic or fearful of nuclear power than the Simpsons. Yeah, but it's also, it's the Soviet Union. That was one of the gags on the Simpsons episode where Homer <laughs> averts a disaster with his giant butt and Mr. Burns is like, thanks to your quick thinking, you turned a potential Chernobyl into a mere three-mile island. <laughs> 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 And now we come to Martin the Monorail. Yay! See, this was the only episode that I've actually seen before we um, got ready to record this. But I think I'd only actually seen, like, the last half of the episode. I didn't know why that they had the money to make the monorail. Which leads in pretty well to what we were just talking about. Yeah! Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, when the Environmental Protection Agency finds Mr. Burns $3 million for dumping nuclear waste in a Springfield park, Burns pays the fine out of his own pocket and then buys the Statue of Justice in the courtroom just to hammer that point home. A town meeting is held to decide how to spend the money. After a few suggestions, including one from a poorly disguised Mr. Burns who invested I'm back sorry, into Mr. the Scrub, obviously. He's from someplace very far away. Yes. That'll do. Marge nearly convinces the town to repair the rundown Main Street, but a fast-talking salesman named Lyle Landley Voiced by Phil Hartman! leads a song and dance routine <laughs> that convinces the townspeople to instead build a monorail. 
After running a questionable training program, Landley randomly selects Homer as the monorail's conductor. Doubtful about Landley, Marge visits his office and discovers that he intends to run off with the money skimmed from the project, leaving the townspeople with a defective train. Yeah, he, he literally drew out his fantasies. Marge drives to the town of North Haverbrook, a previous purchaser of one of Landley's monorails. She discovers the town and its monorail in complete ruins. She meets Sebastian Cobb, the engineer who designed it and confirms that all of Landley's monorail projects are scams. Cobb offers to help Marge prevent Springfield from suffering the same fate, but at the Springfield's monorail's inaugural run, Landley arranges for Leonard Nimoy to be present in a well-attended opening ceremony, which is a diversion that enables him to escape on a plane to Tahiti. When the flight makes an unexpected stopover in North Averbrook, the townsfolk storm the aircraft to attack Landley for ruining their community. Back in Springfield, the monorail leaves the station just before Marge and Cobb arrive, and it soon goes out of control, causing the solar-powered train to overspeed round the track, endangering Homer, Bart, and everyone on board. <laughs> Including Leonard Nimoy! <laughs> the train stops briefly during a solar eclipse, because the cosmic ballet rolls on, but then starts again. <laughs> As Chief Wiggum and Mayor Quimby argue over who takes charge, Marge and Cobb contact Homer by radio, and Cobb tells him that he must find an anchor to stop the train. <laughs> favorite joke in there is just like you need to find an anchor and homer just looks at bart and bart turns into an anchor it's like you need to think harder homer <laughs> <laughs> improvising quickly homer prized loose the metal m from the engine side logo ties a rope to it and throws it from the train after damaging a large portion of the town especially the already derelict roads the m catches on the giant donut of the lard lad donut store's sign and the rope holds stopping the monorail as the passengers are rescued marge concludes that the monorail was the only foolish project that the town ever embarked upon, except for a skyscraper made from popsicle sticks, a 50-foot-tall magnifying glass, and an up escalator that leads nowhere. <laughs> the people would just fall off. They're like, Alright, Conan O'Brien conceived the idea for this episode when he saw an ad on a Los Angeles billboard with the word monorail printed on it, and no additional context. <laughs> He pitched it to Gene and Reese at a story retreat, and they thought that the concept was funny, but a little too weird, and told him to try a few concepts that were a bit less out there when he approached James L. Brooks. O'Brien pitched Brooks a couple of ideas before going to the monorail, one involving Lisa becoming jealous when a new student who might be smarter than her attends the school, and he pitched another story where Marge gets a job at the nuclear power plant and gets sexually harassed by Mr. Burns. So they went with both of those. Yeah, Brooks liked both ideas, and they were later made into episodes by other writers, but he fell in love with the monorail pitch when O'Brien summoned the nerve to try it out, and then a very cocky O'Brien approached Gene and Reese. <laughs> Producers wanted Leonard Nimoy to guest voice for the episode from the onset, but they were reluctant since they asked William Shatner in a previous season and he had turned them down. They next approached George Takei, who had already appeared on the show and would come back several more times. However, Takei was on the board of directors for a Southern California rapid transit district and he was involved in a monorail project at the time. <laughs> They tried to rewrite the episode several times, but Takei declined because he didn't think mocking public transit would be a good look for him. Staff then went to Nimoy, who turned out to be a Simpsons fan, who planned his Sunday around it with his wife and enthusiastically Aww, accepted it. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> that's not his only guest spot, though, is it? No, no he's also in the X-Files, right? 
Yeah, he also okay. shows up in the X-Files parody. Lyle Lamley, for the kids at home, is based upon the music man's Harold Hill. Oh my god, I love the music man. The monorail song is a spoof of You Got Trouble. It's I, a very catchy song. I would learn all this after the fact. Yep. <laughs> Although my, um, my local middle school put on a production of the music man, so I'm familiar with it. Since he typically only did bit parts on The Simpsons, Phil Hartman would usually drop in and do like three to four episodes of dialogue in one go. Lanley, however, gets a lot more episode time than Lionel Hutz or Troy McClure usually did, although there are a few Troy McClure-centric episodes. Because of this, Hartman participated in the table read, and he recorded alongside the various other voice actors. Graining says that Lanley is Hartman's finest performance on The Simpsons, and while I do love Troy McClure and Lionel Hutz, I do think you can make a case for Landly. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the musical number is just A+. plus. My friends and I recently watched Kiki's Delivery Surface, and in the English dub, Phil Hartman voices Gigi the Cat. And afterwards, I'm like, wait, you guys got to see the SNL skit, which I think is probably one of the funniest ones with Phil Hartman, where he plays Bill Clinton campaigning in a McDonald's, and he just starts eating everyone's food while he talks politics. Because, yeah, building up the <laughs> prison industrial complex is one thing, but Bill Clinton's a stress eater. Let's use that. Thanks, SNL. <laughs> Uh, and now the, the bit where Lyle Lamley is on the plane, he's going, North Haverbrook, where do I know that name from? Oh, no! <laughs> that, that part's wonderful. That oh, no always gets me. <laughs> uh, the beginning of this episode is a Flintstones parody where Homer is about to hit a chestnut tree. When, we, when this episode aired when we were kids, we just sang that over and over again for the whole rest of the night. I bet Mom loved it. The Flint- Complete with the scream. <laughs> The Flintstones parody was originally much longer, but the writers found it laggy, and they decided that it got funnier the more they streamlined things, and the more they cut out, and the more that they emphasized the chestnut tree. Yeah. That's still funny. I still really enjoy I w- that. I was not expecting it to end with the car crash. <laughs> he knows he's about to hit a chestnut tree, but he can't do anything about it. It's so deterministic. This episode marks the first instance of Homer's lifelong dream running gag. It's not really used anymore, except apparently Family Guy picked it up, and on the episode commentary, they love pointing that out. I wouldn't know. I don't watch that show. Yeah, me neither. The engineer was modeled after the actor Max von Sydow. Nobody remembers why. I can see that, though. Yeah, me too. Although I primarily think of him as the Grim Reaper, because of course I do. Same. Matt Groening's favorite joke in the Simpsons period is, I call the big one bitey. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's hard to pick one single gag, but that's not a bad one. It has layers. Layers is of possums. O'Brien is proud of that one, but he is most proud of donuts. Is there anything they can't do? All right, the themes for this one, uh, I was going to bring up Gullible Town Rubes. This is a big part of The Simpsons. I think it's reflected in a lot of later shows, particularly the citizens of Pawnee and Parks and Recreation. I feel there's a lot of Springfield energy in Pawnee. And while there are a couple of prior instances, I think this solidified the dopey Springfield mob as a recurring element of the show. They're easily led, they're easily irritated, they're easily brought to violence, but they're also easily prevented from enacting upon it. Which, you know, that later bit would be nice in real life. And yeah, it's definitely a mob thing, too, because you do have to get them all together and pitch at them like that. 
And another thing is that whenever they write the mob scenes, the Simpsons writers go out of their way to make sure that the characters who show up in the mob are amongst the dumbest. They almost always have Sideshow Mel there. Uh, they usually have Barney there. They usually have the pawn shop guy. They almost always find a way to stick Matt Groening in the background. <laughs> And another thing uh, that you kind of have to bring up for this one is the very concept of public transit. I mean, I love public transportation. I loved going to college in a city where there was a great bus service that I got to use for free. Yeah, we do not live in a country where, in most communities, you could just go to a bus stop and wait 15 minutes, and then a bus will show up, and it'll take you where you need to be. I like how Lisa, you know, grill, started to grill Landley on how, like, unnecessary this particular model of public transit was for Springfield. I love that. And then, like, was easily diverted through intellectual flattery. America is a very emphatic country when it comes to privately owned cars, and it is actively hostile to public transit. There's a couple of reasons for this. One thing, just America just being a huge country with a lot of communities in the United States, especially, you know, in between the coasts, being sparsely populated. Not practical to have something like a monorail, as Lisa points out in this episode. However, another aspect of this is 1950s auto companies who bought trolleys and bus companies in order to put them out of business, who, frankly, Roger Rabbit is real. Yeah, I was like, I, I was thinking of that. I was like, oh, I saw it in your notes. Yeah, Boo Frame Roger Rabbit for sure. Another thing is that when the suburbs were designed in the 1950s, they were constructed with winding cul de sacs and loping roads that are very hostile to mass transit. You kind of have to own a car if you need to drive to your job that's more than 20 minutes away, which for most people is the case. And at the same time, there is a sort of individual liberty that we associate with our cars. Uh, cars are up there with, you know, hamburgers, apple pie, baseball, and gun violence when it comes to embodying the American spirit. The idea that you own your car and you fix it up and you take it on the road and it's a, a symbol of your pioneer spirit. So whenever public transit is brought up, you will always find people who are opposed to it from a reactionary viewpoint, even if they aren't flat out libertarians. If I didn't need to own a car, I wouldn't have one. Yep. And Matt Groening, on the commentary, mentions that he is routinely contacted by libertarian groups who are opposed to a public transit project, <laughs> expecting him to throw his hat in and support them. <laughs> No, Matt Groening is very pro-public transit. He thinks that the country should have more of it. It's good for the economy. It's good for the environment. It's better all around in areas like that. You just don't want it to be built by a singing con man. Exactly. Yeah, That's the real point of the episode. He's pointing out that the episode is willfully absurd. For instance, wouldn't it be cheaper to build a functioning monorail than one that is dangerously fast? But that's not the point of the episode. <laughs> well, he's just astonished that libertarians point to March in the monorail as an example of how public transportation is not practical and it's actually bad. Yeah, but Marge's concerns were valid and she did have a plan to use the money that wasn't for the monorail. Yeah, fix up Main Street as opposed to reinvesting it into Springfield Nuclear, as that mysterious man pointed out. <laughs> yeah, those libertarians watching The Simpsons would be like, I like the way Shrub thinks. <laughs> 
Okay, well, that's everything I wrote down in my notes. Is there anything that any of you would like to say about these three particular episodes of The Simpsons before we wrap up? Um, I think one of the other jokes that made me laugh really hard in Barge in the Monorail is when they're listing all the celebrities, and there's, like, the actor from, like, the Springfield teen drama, and he comes out, and he's really handsome, and then Ken Brockman's like, he's 34 years old, and, like, he just smiles, and he has, like, really wrinkly, over-tanned skin. Yeah, <laughs> He's two years younger than me, yay. Yeah, but he, you, you don't go to a tanning salon. You, you could pass for someone under 30, for sure. I am descended from Irish people. I can't go outside, ever. <laughs> yeah, so we could tell 90210 was very relevant when that episode was made. Another thing that keeps popping up on these is just, like, really lazy gay jokes, because one of the other celebrities that comes out is, like, a recently outed leading man who seems like an old-school Hollywood dude, and, yeah, there's a, hey, I, uh, I, I think your boyfriend is kind of protective. Yeah, I thought of that one, too. It was like, oh, yeah, this episode is written by boomers, and if you're gonna wade into boomer humor, you're gonna have to deal with a couple of lazy gay jokes that have an age super great. Yeah, I was going through, like, one of my Mad Magazine collections, and some of, like, the ones from the early 2000 have like a still homophobic jokes that at least they're not advocating for violence against gay people but it's more like the haha they're gay that's funny and that's it's like the joke yeah, yeah. It's like that's the joke and you're like Ugh. i mean yeah. i think that's the part about lazy gay jokes and boomer humor that turned me off of them in the first place like even putting aside the ethical bits about normalizing ridiculing gay people the very existence of gay people is supposed to be perceived as hilarious. Like, uh, if you ever watch those old Eddie Murphy specials, like, that's the joke. <laughs> I kept thinking of them when the Dave Chappelle thing blew up. And like, oh, are people from 30 years from now going to look back at these and think the same way I did about Eddie Murphy? And will Dave Chappelle think like Eddie Murphy and be like, oh, God, what the hell was wrong with me? I'm going with no on most of that. Yeah, I'm going to go no. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I still think probably one of the best gay jokes that was, like, positive was in Always Be My Maybe, where, like, one of the characters realizes that the woman he's talking to is a, a pregnant lesbian, and he's like, oh, uh, you're a lesbian? Oh, uh, uh, thank you for your service. That's all you got. Yeah. <laughs> all right, well, that's it. Thanks for listening. Join us next time, and we'll figure out which Simpsons writer we're going to do for the next one. Yay!